0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Charles Back has had an enormous influence on the South African wine industry. He's an innovator, a maverick and a campaigner for transformation and social change. Listen to his chat about the story behind Goats Do Rome, his most famous brand. His rediscovery of the Swatland thanks to a tank of Sauvignon Blanc, his love of Rhone and Mediterranean grapes and how he always tries to turn a negative into a positive. Hi Charles, how are you? Oh, welcome. Nice to see you. Uh, likewise, Um You're in Parliament. You lucky man, Summer over there.
1: I'm sitting near the other winery in my in the farm homestead in the in the kitchen. Actually, I think I hate you even more than I did already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as ever, lots of stuff
0: to discuss. I mean, you've had this amazing influence on the South African wine industry. Let's start with a little bit of background. Uh, you're Charles Back II. I've never heard you use the title, but um, how, much, how much do we know about Charles Back I, really, who came to South Africa from Lithuania in, what, 1902? Was he fleeing persecution, pogroms, that sort of stuff?
1: Um, I think he was fleeing uh, the system in Lithuania at that stage. Uh, as being a Jewish boy, he had to go to the army for six years in the Russian army in Siberia. And uh, that was compulsory. And I think, uh, and that reality, uh, he thought that he'd rather immigrate, as lots of Jewish people did at that time of the, of that stage of history. And he took a boat and he came to South Africa. And that's 1902, he arrived there. But it could have been the States or something, could have or anywhere? Yeah, I I think he took the wrong boat sometimes. Uh, (laughs) But fortunately, he landed in the Cape and I've been (laughs) privileged enough to be part of the wine history in the last 50 years.
0: Have you ever been back to Lithuania to see where he came from?
1: Yes, in fact, I did a couple of years ago. I went back to do a roots tour. It was an amazingly emotional tour and it was uh, uh, very informative. And I can understand why he came to Pal because he lived in the rural area and his father was a flour miller and um, he bought in wheat in the area and he had a big mill built over the river and he converted the wheat into into flour and i'd look back i've made no progress i take agricultural products and convert them into value-added products so, that's actually <laughs> exactly where we started
0: <laughs> i mean your dad cyril took over your granddad's export wine business and your mom Beryl, and we were both very important influences on your life, really, and they both got wines named after them in the Fairview range. Yes. I just wonder what you learned from from them, from your parents.
1: Yeah, I learned, for, let's start back with Charles back the first. I'm very proud to be named after him. He was a really honest, hardworking grafter that came with nothing and built up a, a family business and able to buy two sons' farms in the wine business. Uh, so I learned hard work from him, and I, I always reflect when, I, when things are tough, I think how tough it must have been for him. And then it sort of inspires you to move forward. My father, I think I learned integrity, hard work. And a handshake is a handshake. He never went back on that. If he made a deal, that was it. Even if it turned out to be his own detriment, he wouldn't waver. And my mother, I would think silent power. She was a, a very friendly lady and a very outgoing lady. But underneath that, she had a very strong will and most, got most things done. And then a the very important business lesson was customer service I got from her. Customer says, jump, you say, how hi. yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, and your dad was a bit of an entrepreneur as well, wasn't he? He was the first person to sell his wines with an auction at Fairview, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, I think I'm still unpacking my dad's suitcase of ideas. Um, he was a far greater innovator than I ever could imagine to be. He woke up every day had a new idea. And I used to try things the whole time, new things the whole time, from growing asparagus to beaches, to farming with chickens, to farming with guinea fowl, to farming with ducks, you name it, I've seen everything, okay? And and I I still, actually just implementing all the ideas he had, I stick to it a bit longer than he does, he sort of moved on from one idea to the other, uh, where I actually try and take it to the conclusion.
0: But he was making wine from the start, was he? I mean, because your granddad bought the estate, didn't he? The Fairview Estate.
1: Yeah, they've been making wine here on this property where I'm sitting now since 1693. And when our family came here in 1902, it was already a wine business. We just slowly upgraded it over generations. Yeah.
0: I've read somewhere that you always want to be a farmer rather than a winemaker. Your mum used to bring your lunch out to you when you were sitting on a tractor. When did you decide, okay, I'm going to be a winemaker instead? Was it when you went to Elsenburg? Agricultural college?
1: No, I think that uh, I always thought that, knew in my head that wines are grown. Mm. So hence the reason that I always was interested in the the viticultural side of winemaking. But it was a a natural uh, progression because I just want to add value to agricultural products. Bring me milk, I'll turn it into cheese. Bring me grapes, I'll give you wine. So it's a natural part of my evolution, I think.
0: But there wasn't a moment when you thought, okay, I want
1: to be a winemaker at Elsenberg." It, it would have been happening already in your head, did it? No, I think as a small boy growing up on the farm and can't wait for the harvest and smell the must, fermenting must on the whole, permeating the whole property, uh, it, it was really, uh, in my earliest recollection, those are the exciting times of the year, and I always wanted to participate in that.
0: So wine was, was really in your blood, isn't it, in your DNA, really? Yeah, I, absolutely. I can't live without it. Yeah. I mean, you joined your dad at Fairview and you immediately started to innovate. I know you said that your dad was already innovating. Yeah. Um, you know, you brought in new varieties, new techniques. What, what did you do exactly? Just tell us about the varieties you brought in and the techniques that you introduced.
1: Uh, I think there's so many things. I've had a, a very interesting, As my 45th vintage. So you can imagine 45 years being a curious uh, person, the amount of things that you would try and you only see the successes. You don't hear about all the failures. Believe me, there are many of those as well.
0: Oh, Tell us about a failure. What was the worst?
1: <laughs> no, I actually started, I made the first blonde Denoir in South Africa. Uh, and then I didn't have the guts to bottle it the next day, uh, the next yeah, Boschendal came out with with Blanc and it it was a hit at that stage. I think my failures, uh, I I don't know, trying to do too many things sometimes. Mm-hmm. And narrowing it down and focus that I think that's where I am in my life now in my career. I think I bought, I must be very careful. I made a very mis- area to wine tasting one day. I introduced carbonic maceration. I must be careful with that word. You got it wrong in the tasting. <laughs> I introduced carbonic maceration in South Africa, which has now resulted into whole cluster fermentation and a lot of whole clusters introduced in, in winemaking. I also introduced A whole bunch pressing into South Africa and a whole host. For whites. Yeah. For Um, whites. Yeah, sure. And then partial carbonic maceration, uh, extended skin contact on whites, cold for soaking. We've done a whole host. We've done everything, I think. You were doing all these in the 70s, were you? I, when I started, yeah. yeah. Because I had a very rudimentary cellar and limited viticultural resources. So I had to manipulate the grapes as much as possible to get extract any quality. And in those days in apartheid, South Africa had a very small only domestic market. So if anybody came to your cellar door, you had to have something that appealed to everybody's taste. So you were forced to innovate and try and be creative with what you had. And what
0: about new varieties? Because you were starting to think already about Mediterranean grapes, weren't you?
1: Yeah. I always thought that South Africa had the wrong varietal mix, other than Chenin, most probably, and and Pinotage and Cinco. But everybody went after the classical Bordeaux and, 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 and that type of variety. And, and we didn't have, a, I don't think we had the climatic conditions for that on as an, as an industry. There are certain pockets of excellence. Surely you can find them popping up all over. But as an industry driver, we never had that. And I always knew that Rhone varieties, even port varieties, Greek varieties, Mediterranean, Spanish varieties, uh, big berry varieties are the type of varieties you need to plant here. So I drove a whole extensive campaign to get this stuff imported into South Africa legally. So it all came in legally and went through quarantine. And we planted Vionia for the first time. Uh, I, I think reinvigorated Grenache to a large degree, Mulvadra, Carignan, uh, the whole host of Mediterranean stuff. Mm.
0: I don't think you always get the credit for the,
1: for doing that, really.
0: But I mean, just tell us a bit more. What sort of shape was South African the South African wine industry at the time? We've just mentioned that it was obviously still under the apartheid system. Yeah. How how was the how did
1: the industry feel at the time? Did it feel positive despite all of that? I think the industry was a well organised industry and a lot of structure in place. So there was little innovation. And you couldn't plant grapes where you wanted to. You had to have a quota, so it was tightly controlled. In that control, it gave certainty, but it uh, it really killed entrepreneurship and and innovation to a large degree. Um, and and you were cert- assured of selling your wine. If you if you had surplus, the KWV would buy it up. So you had a cushion. There was a. There was a cushion effect. So uh, it actually stifled innovation to a large degree. And obviously whatever happened on the on the social front as well was uh, horrific.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's lots of people talking about the surfing wine industry at the time, said it was quite Eastern European, you know, that Russians would come there and kind of recognize the system with five-year plans and things like that. And as you said, this safety net, which yeah. sort of encouraged
1: mediocrity in a way, didn't it? Uh, that's what it actually did, and and having that totally removed where we are now, if you take a South African wine industry as it is, it has no governmental assistance whatsoever, no nothing, no support. Uh, it's we're out on the limb on our own very virtually, and this has driven innovation to new heights in this country with a whole lot yeah. of the young winemakers doing extremely exciting things.
0: Yeah, I mean you're a winemaker, and as we've already heard, a farmer, but. You're also an amazing entrepreneur. I know you said your dad was an entrepreneur too, but what's your secret? You all seem to be having fun. I mean, is it because you get bored easily? Um, is it true you don't even have a marketing strategy? You just come up with these ideas and throw them out there.
1: No, I, I think I'm. A, I, I really my career is my hobby and, and my passion. I think to go away on a holiday sometimes for me is a hardship. You're taking away from something that you have so much fun in doing. And you spread the fun and joy as well with your customers interacting with your product. So it's it's almost addictive and become very much. I'm not a workaholic. I don't chase the buck at all. I do it for the sheer pleasure and enjoyment of what I'm privileged to be born into. So the cash doesn't matter really? Not really, no. It's not the main consideration. So I wouldn't work out, I wouldn't work out a costing on a product, really. I, as long as my business ticks over and I can sustain myself and the 600 people that work with me, I'm very happy to continue on this basis. I, my, dad, my dad always said, you don't want to be the richest man in the graveyard. No, it's very true. Good advice, isn't it? Yeah. But when do these ideas occur to you?
0: Just when you're walking around or on your, on your, exos- on your, on your mountain bike or, I don't know,
1: <laughs> asleep? <laughs> uh, this, I, 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 i'm constantly restless and thinking about opportunities and I, i'm really proudly south african and i really want to show the world that south africa can produce a kind of quality across a whole range of products with the innovation and the people the human resources we have at our disposal so i always look at where opportunity would like to extract the best value for the business and the people involved with it yeah, I mean, when you started, you said you started in this innovation, but
0: travel, which was quite difficult in those days for for South Africans, was important to you
1: too because you started to go overseas and look at other places. Where, where did you go exactly? I think I'm very fortunate. at a stage in my life when I, I I wanted to leave South Africa just before apartheid was dismantled. I didn't see much hope in future, and uh, I actually wanted to leave. And then I I thought about long and hard and. The realization dawned on me that, that South Africa will come right. The indications were there that there could be a change. And I want to be part of the, the solution, not part of the problem. And I knew that I had to expose myself to international winemaking. And I have a very good friend, uh, Jeff Greer from Valera. And he and I were fortunate enough to travel the world. Uh, we used all our little bit of cash we had and made sure we went to every wine, just about every wine-producing country in the world and spent immersed ourselves, we were in California for three weeks, we were in Australia for in New Zealand for three weeks or something like that, went all over Europe, continental Europe, and we did the classics plus the new world, and Chile and Argentina, and I really immersed ourselves in what was going on globally. And then I brought that all back to South Africa and then mixed a bit of African flair and a bit of Fairview flair, if you want to call that, into that mix and came up with my unique style of wine, which, uh, which was internationally very successful when we launched because of the fact that I exposed myself to what was going on globally.
0: So, When did you start traveling then?
1: Well, in the the late parts of apartheid. So when it was 30, 35 years ago, we started looking at what was going on. Yeah,
0: And, And which regions had the most impact on you? Was it California? Was it the Rhone Valley? I mean, where did
1: you feel most at home? I think the Rhone Valley was one that I understood, uh, instinctively I understood that uh, the southern Rhone, I could see South Africa there, Russelon, Lankedoc, you could see South Africa there. Uh, Argentina was interesting too, what they did with Malbec, I found that quite interesting. Uh, Chile was amazing. The, the topography and, and the country and, and the, the standard quality that they're able to get that homogeneous soiled and stuff. That was also very good. There's a couple of areas that I wouldn't copy. There's a couple of things you can't copy. One is Chablis. You can only make it in Chablis. That, that I quickly, uh, learned. <laughs> and, and Rhine wines. So you can, you can only do it and it's probably, uh, there. Uh, Australia was impressive. In the early uh, days, uh, they were able to turn out quality on quite large scale. That was impressive. So you pick up snippets all over California, great for the tourism, uh, what they try to offer the the visitor. So you pick up pieces and you put them, puzzle them together within the framework of your constraints.
0: Interesting. I mean, not everyone knows this, but you, you were really the man who, who rediscovered the Swatland in many ways. Uh, and the trigger was, was, was not Syrah or Grenache or Mourvedre or anything. It was Sauvignon Blanc, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Can you just tell us that story about what happened? How did you end up in the Swatland buying a Sauvignon Blanc vineyard? <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, every year, uh, I don't do it anymore. In fact, I'm thinking of doing it again. I should go around to all the co-ops. You must remember, I think at that stage, about 75% of the wine in the country was vinified by co-ops. And you'd find lots of jewels and gems in the, in, or in the co-ops, in the tanks. So I used to go with the winemakers, taste through their wines and just chat what's going on to get a feel of where I was going to expand viticulturally, because I always knew I wanted to spread from, from where I was based in Paul. And then I landed up at Swatland Co-op. And the guy took me to this tank of Sauvignon Blanc, and I was blown away. In fact, as a one young wine, that Sauvignon Blanc won, not that it's a very uh, prestigious thing to, to brag about, but it won the young wine of the year in South Africa. Uh, a Sauvignon Blanc, which you can imagine, to win that, it must have been very expressive. So I thought to myself, there's something going on here. If a guy in the Swatland, which is perceived to be a very hot area, can make such an expressive Sauvignon Blanc, imagine what we can do with Shiraz and Grenache and it. And I went to the farmer and and I saw the vineyard and I I was amazed and I asked him would he want to sell the farm and he said yes and we shook hands on it and I bought the farm that day. Okay, And I've kept that vineyard of Sauvignon Blanc, not for economical reasons, (laughs) more just just for uh, emotional and historical reasons and it's now the oldest block of Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa planted in 1969. And and we still benefit wine from it as a single block Sauvignon Blanc. It's not as expressive as it was in its youth, But it still makes interesting wine. And, and the brand you set up in the Swatland was called Spice Root, which made
0: its first wines in, I think, 1998. Yeah. And the man you appointed as the first winemaker was Evan Sardi, who's yeah. gone on to be a legend in his own right. Yeah. Do you remember the job interview? Because he told me that it lasted five minutes and you gave him a ticket to the rugby. Is that right? <laughs> He's got a better memory than
1: I have. <laughs> <laughs> it could be something like that. Um, I, I, I got to hear from about him to Robin Day. I don't know if you know Robin Day. I yeah. think was, uh, We were good friends. And, and Robin told me he saw this very passionate young winemaker. He even was young at those days. He's still passionate. A very young, passionate winemaker, a cooperative called operative if I remember correctly. And I got a hold of him because he was a surfing buddy of my winemaker who's still with me, Anthony de Yarta. And I asked Anthony about him. So he said, No, he's a cool dude. He's a very nice guy, very passionate, talented. And I met him. I instantaneously knew that, that this guy's got what it takes. He had the feel. The personality, and I needed to put the right winemaker in the Swatland. It was very important because to get the Swatland going, you needed a personality. Uh, And he certainly was that. And the personality was skill, who can understand terroir and interpret it. So he was my man, and and, uh, we had a great time together. He was with me for four vintages. Yeah, it was a smart call, really. Yeah. Um, 2000, you came up with
0: this amazing brand, <laughs> very successful brand, called, called Goats to Rome. And where did you come up with that <laughs> idea?
1: I <laughs> uh, don't know if you know a guy called Roger Higgs. Yeah. You know Roger? Yeah, hey, I was at Fuller's for years. Yeah. Yes. Now, I used to sell wine to Fuller's, uh, and in the early days when we were just a readmission to selling wine in the uk and and roger always i always spoke to roger and said you know what south africa should be doing we should have a seriously good rhone style blend and in the quaffing thing but high quality and that's what south africa could do well and and i think i i, I can do that that's the kind of thing i could do in, in a reasonable price middle price range, but I can really offer value and really take on international brands and show, illustrate what South Africa is capable of. And then he said, but you're a goat farmer as well, so why don't you call it Goats to Rome? That was his idea. It's his idea. I can't take clearance for it at all. And it it was such a wacky idea. I sat on the the thing for two years. And until one day the goats escaped out of the goat tower. I don't know if you know, we've got a goat tower at Fairview. I love the goat tower. Yeah, And the goats ran into the vineyard, and they skipped the Cabernet, they skipped the Merlot, they hit the Shiraz big time, and and then they skipped the Malbec, and then they hit the Grenache big time. And then I saw these goats had some kind of pattern. They had had a preference for certain grape varieties. So I sent the lady from the lab with a clipboard running behind them and sort of taking down notes of how long they spent in each block (laughs) <laughs> how much Shiraz the ate, how much ganache, more or less, and Muvadra. And we put it all together and we came back with the goat blend. <laughs> According to the goats' preference for grape varietal, and we put together Goats to Rome and, and the rest is history. It became a very successful brand. And and I'm trying to slaughter the goat because I don't want to be remembered in my winemaking career as a guy that produces goats to Rome. I do other more serious stuff, but everywhere, every time we come close to slaughtering, it pops up as a bestseller somewhere else. And now it's it's really doing very well. I think it's got almost 40% of the South African wine market in, in Norway. So it's doing very well there. <laughs> and the French
0: hated it, didn't they, because of the, you know, the play on words with Cote du Rhone, obviously.
1: Yeah, I, it actually started, there was a blind tasting. Do you remember the British wine magazine? Mm. Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore, does it? I no, think certainly not. Okay. They had a Rhone tasting and somebody slipped in. I had two goat du Rhone, I I'd uh, goats du mm. Rhone and I had goat Roti. There was a, a, a goat on a spit. We'd been roasted <laughs> okay. instead of goat roti, right? And, yeah. goat roti. <laughs> and And I had the two wines were entered into a Rhone tasting. Now, I'm not going to mention the names who were involved in the tasting, but you can imagine the, uh, the big three in the Rhone. Okay, their wines were there. And unfortunately, Goats the Rhone beat them, and the goat roti also beat it, which was the Shira's uh, Viognier blend. Okay, they got the top score in the tasting, in the blind tasting. And then I got lawyer's letters and uh, they wanted to sue me which they tried to and then I went to unconventional warfare uh, and <laughs> we did in two French tradition, <laughs> where if the French farmers upset, they go dump a load of the manure in the Champs-Elysees and I thought we'll be a bit more civilized. I packed a vacuum-packed little bag of goat droppings, and I took it to the embassy in, in uh, Cape Town, and we had a protest march. And I think it made political history in South Africa with the first protest march where a a European farmer with the farm workers collectively walked and marched for a common cause. I think that goes down the (laughs) street. We had a protest march and uh, coincidentally CNN arrived. I had nothing to do with that, of course. And this thing went global and the French backed off very quickly unfortunately, because that was my best marketing tool I ever had (laughs) in my life.
0: Humor. I mean, how many wines do you make now? I've lost count. I mean, I look on the website and there are eight different brands. Uh, And lots of wines <laughs> under each umbrella. Are you ever worried about confusing the consumer?
1: No, because I'm confused to start with. <laughs> no, my business is a different business. I, I own, the, when I say I, collectively all of us, we own ten farms in four different appellations, yeah. with uh, four different winemakers, uh, of two of which ladies. Uh, and and a lot of different vineyards and access to lots of new vineyards and continue trying to find and move the frontiers and boundaries. Uh, and so we make these wines and, for instance, we plant about 20, 30 hectares of vineyard a year. Now, what you do with the young wine that's coming in, the young grapes, you don't want to put them into your premium range. So we have a range called La Capra, which is actually – from all the young vineyards. So that's a variety range. Then we've got Goats to Rome, which makes sense as we deserve. And then the Fairview range, and then around it, we try and do single vineyards and exciting things. But if you look at my portfolio, Compared to some of the players in the road, it's just as confusing as what theirs is, nothing more, nothing less, but it's winemaker, dri- <laughs> it's winemaker driven. If we find something special, a barrel or something special, we're not going to blend it away for commercial reasons. We'll bottle it separately, even if it's one barrel, and we'll sell it in our tasting room to, to, uh, to provide our customers more variety and hopefully joy.
0: I mean, you've mentioned that the success you've had with certain commercial brands, particularly goes to Rome, which you don't want to be remembered for. <laughs> yeah. do, do you think sometimes that success you have commercially stops people
1: taking you seriously as a fine wine producer? Um, I think we do suffer a bit from that. And we, we obviously, we're we, we trying to get more serious, but we find it extremely difficult to be serious because my whole team, we don't take ourselves too seriously. I always say we're in service of our product and in service of our customer, that's what I say. We're never bigger than either of those. So I think humility is something that permeates through our our business. And it, and we also extremely honest and straightforward. Uh, I think that is what the, the integrity of the company. I'm very proud of. So we we're not bound to go and sh- shout from the highest rooftops. how great. We are. We let our products do the the, the talking. I think, but in that uh, we do. I think we make a massive amount of very seriously fine wine. I don't think we'd get enough recognition for that. Uh, my personal view is, I always like to do things blind. And then you can take the perception out of the out of the, the mix. Yep. And then invariably when we do it blind, we normally have outside people tasting with us. We yep. invariably win those blind tastings. What but happened to it, me
0: with you. We we did a tasting and that and, and your wines did very
1: well in the tasting. Yeah, I think in every category we were first or second or first yep. or third. So yep. I mean we do that regularly. We benchmark with our cheese and our wine. And I'm very comfortable. I'm very confident that we have most probably the I would go as far as say one of the better ranges in the country.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned this already. Historically, South Africa was focused on, and still is, on, on cooler climate French grapes, you know, particularly Chenin from the Loire, but also Bordeaux grapes. Yeah. Um, and you were ahead of your time when and working with these Rhone and Mediterranean grapes. Do you think with climate change that, that, that more people are following your lead and thinking, hey, he was right all along. We should be planting all these things like Tariga and, and, and Carignan,
1: Morvedre and Syrah and Grenache? Yeah, I think there's acceleration in plantings now of those varieties, and I'm very happy to see it because it bodes well for the future of our industry. If you don't have the right raw material, you're not going to compete internationally. And I think a variety like Grenache could make a massive impact Blanc and noir and green can make a massive impact on our, on our, uh, our middle range of wines in this country. So it's, uh, it's very good to see. And there are a lot of young winemakers working with stuff like with Tinta Barocca, I see uh, mm. popping up, which is a great variety. So I see a lot of this coming to Riga. I see a lot of this stuff coming through. And there's a host of other varieties that are heat resistant. Um, we just, I just bottled the first Petit Mansing. Ah. In South Africa, which uh, which, which is a, a struggle to get that one right, but it's, yeah, legally. <laughs> but it's an amazing variety. We, we pick it uh, at, at the reasonable sh- sugar, but it's got a massive acidity, and it's able to retain that acidity during warm spells, which yeah. makes it a great blending partner for a host of white varieties where you don't have to artificially acidify. You can rather yeah. have that. So there's a lot of things that we can still do. Tell us a little bit about your Quevery wines.
0: Uh, uh, that's is a Georgian style. Did you go to Georgia? Is that what inspired those wines?
1: They're sort of semi-orange wines in a way, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. I, the way you speak about them, I can see you're not a fan. But anyway. I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You know, after being making wine for 40, 40, I'm now 45th year, I realized a couple of years when I hit the 40 years in wine, there's something that I there's something out there that I haven't tried yet, and I I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew there's some new there's stuff that I still have to do, and uh, I heard about orange wine from Georgia, so I got into a plane, went to Georgia, got myself a tour guide, a driver, because that's important in that part of the world. You think South Africa's bad at driving? You can try Georgia, okay? <laughs> make, make us look like our taxi drivers look like pussycats. cats. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I I went to Georgia and I had the most amazing trip and the most amazing people. they like South Africans, basically. They drink a lot and they play rugby. So it was was like home from home. And, And I met the most amazing, inspirational people. And the system of making wine really appealed to me because they say a grape has everything it needs within itself to sustain itself and, and avoid the necessity of adding any additives for preservation, etc., I said, what are you talking about? So said, well, the stalk has got a lot of potty phenols in it, tannins, the pip has and the skin has. So extract enough of that. You don't have to add sulfur to the wine. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they do. They just chuck the whole grapes into a beautiful clay pot which is buried underground, and they just leave it there for six months, and then they 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 get the local priest to come and make a prayer. Because I tell you, their winemaking you need to pray because half of it doesn't work. <laughs> you, have to, you have to pray very hard, anyway. And they make these beautiful clay pots. There are two of these people left in, in in Georgia. I immediately went to the mountains where they make the clay pots. After a lot of drinking chacha, which is a, a sort of a grappa like raw grappa, with the maker of the clay pots, because he has to like you first before he sells. He sells you a clay pot and anyway, he likes you to see how much you can drink. That's basically what happened. So fortunately, I can put I can handle a bottle of cha cha if I have to. <laughs> and we got stuck into this stuff, and and I bought a container of, of Quiveries. It's called quavery Q V E R V I, Quavery, R I R. And then on the next year I bought another container, and we now have 20 quaveries buried in swatland wow. okay. and so well. Okay, yeah. Despite what you said, I like the wines. I think I was the first person to taste them with yeah, you yeah, as, as yeah. a prototype. Yeah, and, and what we've done is we, we then took the, the traditional method that they do in Georgia and we mix it with high tech to understand the process m- is probably a bit better than they do and yeah. hygiene and all that because it's vital to to keep it. It's, your, your hygiene must be squeaky clean because you're not working with sulfur. And then to do justice to this winemaking process, I converted all the vineyards to uh organic vineyards. So okay. they're all organically yeah. grown grapes now, made in this completely natural way. And I think we've cracked the code. We've we've not gone as big as the Georgian ones, as mm-hmm. funky mm-hmm. and as them, and restrained it a bit and more technologically on point. So I think it's a very nice mix of new world and old world things and by the way george is making wine for eight thousand years and they have 525 indigenous grape varieties wow yeah it's amazing isn't it i want to talk about the social side of
0: wine really because empowerment transformation if you want to use those words have always been very important to you, you set up the fair valley workers association long ago as 97 you always offered your best employees shares in fairview your fair trade accredited i mean how have things progressed in south africa since
1: 1994 I think to, to empowerment in wine would be if you have previously disadvantaged people owning wine farms. I think that will be uh, a real treat for the industry but the problem with the wine business especially in south africa uh, is that it's not a very profitable business okay so there's not enough money surplus cash to drive change and there's not enough on black entrepreneurs who want to invest in wine they'd maybe do it as a trophy but they're not as a, as, a, as a business because the return on investment is far too low i was just looking at european countries i was looking at the uh, investing in, in, in Portugal, and I happened to have privy to the financials of that company. And then I quickly realized their vineyard plant is 100% subsidized. All new machinery is 50% subsidized, where we have nothing of that, but yet we have to compete. And on top of that, we have to empower. And the only way you can empower is with having cash, put cash back into business to buy people shares and buy land. and buy. So it's difficult. It slowed down, I think, the empowerment process, due to the economical reality of of the wine business. So we have to wait for the economy to recover, the
0: world economy as well as the South African economy?
1: I think South African can improve, can go first, can improve first before the world economy. Uh, it, it, you need cash in the industry to really empower people. Uh, that's why mining and telecommunications and banking and insurance, all those are relatively easy to empower. But agriculture, primary agriculture and wine is very difficult to empower. Okay. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about something that was a very traumatic moment in your life, really, in 2018, when you were, you know, attacked on your own farm, in your own house. Yeah. And, you know, you said yourself, you came back from the dead, really. Um, I just wondered how that moment changed your, your outlook on life. I mean, it was amazing that you were there bandaged up, you know, broken ribs back in the office the next day. No, same and, day. How, how, no, how, same day. I mean, yeah. you know, how, how traumatic was that and, and what
1: impact did it have on your life? Uh, it's a long story. I, it's, we don't have enough time to go through all that, but uh, in my office, the reason why I went back to the office, I have a lot of very artistic, uh, innovative millennials at the time working for us in marketing and, and social media and all that type of stuff. And if they sneeze, they're back at home. They take the day off. I touch wood, I've been very fortunate. In the 45 years I've worked, there, I haven't had a sick day off yet, which is a blessing. Okay, and that can change any moment. But at this stage, it's a blessing. But they used to be at home the whole time. So after I came out of hospital, four in the morning, five in the morning, I went straight to the office to show them how you, how what, what, what you have to look like, and you still come to work. Anyway, they all left subsequently. <laughs> no, um, listen, it was a mistake. Uh, so normally, when things go wrong, there's an alignment of three things in falling to place in a certain sequence that causes a, a disaster. It was my own negligence. And uh, when I went to a hospital that night, I was really badly beaten up. Uh, I, I still had to have reconstructive surgery. I was properly, properly got a proper hiding. And um, I was in the hospital and I was thinking, I'm not going to allow this thing to go by without doing get some good out of it. Let's see what I can do that's good out of it. And the narrative normally when a South African farmer gets attacked, it's racial, they say. Or the first thing they say, look how good he's to his people and look what they've done to him. That's sort of the narrative that's normal, that the response to this. And all it was was common criminality. And uh, I thought, let me put my first. Post ever in my life, I'm going to put it out on social media. And just, just to say the story as it is common criminality, my own negligence, and this is what happened as a result. I've got nothing to do with South Africa, politics, racial issues, nothing. It's pure opportunist looking to steal a couple of televisions, okay? And I put it out, and that was part of my healing. 1.8 million people read the post or viewed the post, and I got immense amount of mail. You can't believe the amount of goodwill I got because I handled it in that way. I think it was the right way to handle it. And then I spent four days. I came to office every day, four days in a row. I answered every single mail. And I think that was the way I knew I'd get myself over the hurdle very quickly because all of a sudden I had this whole big family of people that I couldn't disappoint. So I never, it took a, I never changed gear. I never did anything. I was just inspired to do more and work harder and, and try and make South Africa a better place to live in
0: yeah i think I think it was an amazing moment, not for you, obviously it was a terrible moment but but I think what you what you did with it uh, and what came out of it, it was positive
1: yeah and I always have that view every negative thing or anything that goes wrong, you must try and turn it around as fast as you possibly can into positive energy yeah
0: you don't seem to be slowing down as you get older, you know you're in your sixties um any new projects in the pipeline? I mean, you know, you've you've got you've got a brewery, you've got restaurants, um, you, meat now. Are you doing meat now as well as yeah. well as cheese? Obviously, we mentioned cheese and wine.
1: Yeah, I was watching your your what they call it Instagram, and, and yeah. I've got something new. I'm now doing gym as well. I, I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> my next challenge is see who can lift more dead weight. You or I? So that's <laughs> I'm focused on that now. No, uh, no, I'm 67 this year. Uh, I'm in good health. I uh, like to think, but as you say, I never take it for granted. I'm grateful every morning I wake up and look at this beautiful view that I, I I'm blessed to have around me, and do my best every day. And 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 whatever comes, I I'm still plant trees. Because the greatest thing to give is to plant a tree on the, which shade you know you want. So I continue to do, and that's my philosophy and my attitude to what I do around me. Plant trees.
0: Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about it. one of your quotes, which I like very much, that you once said, you're the servant of my product. Yeah. Just What do you mean by that? Is that something maybe that came from your mum, that thing about customer service in a way?
1: Yeah, a bit of that. I, I just think that it's such a privilege to work with, grapes and, and soil and different terroir, and then to see it ferment and turn it into something special that adds pleasure and joy to everybody's life. I, I am a servant of that. I, the, I'm not, never bigger than, and none of us are bigger than our product. We're in service of our products.
0: Uh, just tell us about how you get away from all these various businesses. I mean, you know, the wine, the cheese, the beer and all that stuff. I mean, you've mentioned planting trees. Yeah. You've mentioned lifting weights and trying to lift heavier weights than I'm lifting at the moment. And I know from Charles who works with you, you're an unbelievably competitive cyclist. <laughs> and You insist on beating people who are 20, 30 years younger than you. How do you get away from all this unbelievably busy life you have? What,
1: how do you relax? Um, I, I relax and in my work, to be quite honest, I find it very relaxing. I've now got one of these watches that measures your stress and all that I don't know, your heart rate. My heart rate is I think forty-three in my resting heart rate, and my stress never goes over fourteen. So I'm very happy in what I'm doing. So I don't really I don't really have to get away, to be quite honest with you. So I'm very happy, but I try and exercise every day, do some form of exercise. And I've mixed it up now between cycling. Cycling was too much of one thing. So I do cycling, say, once or twice a week. Then I do what you do, that weightlifting. I do this a little bit more than you do. And then I <laughs> and then then I do Pilates once a week, uh, which I found very strenuous to start with, and I'm slowly easing into it. And then I do something called rucking. You must be careful not to get this word wrong. I do something called rucking, which is carrying a rucksack with weights so I carry to. 24 kilos around and then I walk for an hour and a half with that and I mix it up and then those times that exercise helps me deal with if there's any stress in the system I certainly get rid of it every day.
0: I think the other thing that that keeps you young and healthy and and it's also a huge bit of your personality is humour, as everybody can hear, that you like to have a laugh, as you said, you don't take yourself too seriously. Listen, Charles, it's been great talking to you. So many great stories, um, particularly like the the, the vacuum packed uh, goats (laughs) droppings that you took to the French consul in Cape Town. Uh, It's been lovely to see you and I hope I'll see you very soon, either in London or probably more more likely uh, in the Cape very soon. Cheers, my friend. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Well, I thought that Charles would be a lot of fun to interview, and he didn't let me down. What an inspiring man. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is fine wine counterfeit expert Maureen Downey, sometimes described as the Sherlock Holmes of wine. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at timatkinmw. See you next week.